says, get that India, big boy. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Tip Sheet Podcast. As always, I'm your host, John, also known as 4020. Joining me this week, this episode, my good mate, 60s, another back-to-back recording, mate. How you doing? I'm doing well, mate. And of course, we have a, a, a brilliant guest to join us as we preview matches in the final series. Yeah, well, Thursday podcasts always, or well, unless it's a, a Thursday night game, but in, gen- in general, Thursday podcasts mean it's a preview podcast and... It's week one, the finals, and they don't get much bigger than Penrith v. Para out at Points Bet Stadium, or Blue Bet Stadium, sorry. Yeah, I get all my betting stadiums mixed up these days, but it's Blue Bet Stadium. The reigning premiers, the runaway minor premiers, taking on the only team that has their measure. And like you said, 60s, big game, needs big guns on and off the field. The Eels got all their team fit and firing, but we're going to call them the heavy artillery to preview it. And as always, when it comes to the finals, there is no man better than Bernie Gurr. Bernie, welcome to the tip sheet, mate. How you doing? Thanks, boys. I'm doing terrific. This is a, a great time of year, isn't it? You know, going into springs here, finals footy is here. Can't be better. Oh, September and October footy, there is nothing better than it. And uh, yeah, let's dive right into it because intriguing stuff. The last time we actually spoke to you was when we were previewing the Paraverse Souths clash about a month ago. And obviously the Eels ended up getting pantsed in one of their poorest performances of the season. But that was no disrespect to you because in our preview, you actually picked out the best way to shut down Latron Mitchell being to kick to him, to wear him out and dictate where he could involve himself in the game. Lo and behold, last week, we saw the tricolors, the Sydney Roosters, do that exact plan magnificently, and that probably wouldn't have surprised you. No, it didn't surprise me. I was out at the uh, the Roosters and Rabbitohs game on uh, last weekend, and it didn't surprise me at all. Um, you know, Latrell's a great player, let's just say that straight off the bat. He's got, he's, he can do things other players can't do. And he gives his teammates enormous belief when he's playing, and that's you know that's been demonstrated in how South has gone since he came back from his his uh, injury, uh, hamstring injury. But you know, there are a couple of things about Latrell. You know, my observations are he doesn't like returning kicks. Um, he's he's pretty slow to the ball when you compare him to some of the other guys like you know Gutho and Dylan Edwards that really get to those kicks quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it takes him out if he if he does the first play and you're down and you're surrounding him particularly off a high bomb and you don't give him much room, you take him out of the rest of the set, basically. Um, Latrell's the sort of guy, he lights up in good ball sets or sometimes around the halfway mark where he's playing back through the middle off an inside pass. But in his own half, he do, he doesn't really do that much. Um, he's not the workhorse type like a Gutho, <laughs> excuse me, or a Dylan Edwards. But, uh, yeah, I think the Roosters executed that strategy well and I think South's... Uh, Stats like to amend their strategy when they when they play them again this weekend. It was just so interesting. Like like you said, the Roosters did such a good job of it. Parramatta did such a poor job. And you look at the two different outcomes, you know, and even as bad as the Roosters were in that game, taking some heavy losses like Joey Manu uh, and and whatnot, they managed to eke out that victory because they had such a strong game plan. And and it's you know it's instructive foot, uh, footage and and video for the Parramatta Eels moving forwards. Absolutely, and the platform for the Roosters was not dissimilar to the Eels. They played a very physical, intense game up front, led by Warrior Hargraves early on in Lodge. Um, they kick well, and they contained Latrell. Um, so they did all the basic things right. And you know, that's you know, when you come back to Param- Parramatta, that's what that, when we play well, that's what we do well. We do the simple things well. Mm-hmm. Now, just on that game, Bernie uh, Spiro Christopoulos, who 
now features on our news podcast every week, uh, was there covering that game uh, with 2GB. And he was raving about the new Allianz Stadium. You mentioned that you were there as well. What were your impressions of Sydney's newest stadium? Yeah, look, it's terrific. It's it's very impressive. It's a you know it's a, clearly an upgrade on the old stadium, but as it should be, mate. They spent eight hundred and fifty million dollars on this stadium. It should be state of the art. Uh, it's very good. You know, I saw some lines at food stands and some I read some people were complaining about you know toilet lines and food lines and whatever. But look, it's that's not to be unexpected when you've got a full house. But you know. In a macro level, I think it's a, a really, really impressive stadium. But you know, it, it should be. It cost eight fifty million dollars mm-hmm. to house forty two and a half thousand people, and Combank cost three hundred and fifty million dollars, and it houses thirty thousand people. So, you know, the reality is they're both great stadiums. I think on a with with Alicon Stadium, there's a bit of a honeymoon period now. You know, you had the opening game last week, you had the Wallabies, then you had the Matildas. So this is all great stuff to open the stadium. The challenge for the for that stadium will be when they get crowds of ten to twenty thousand for ongoing matches for the Roosters, potentially the Rabbitohs, the Waratahs, uh, Sydney FC, um, and how you generate an atmosphere because you know ten to twelve thousand in that stadium won't be a good atmosphere. But uh, I understand yeah. they're going to. But for games where they're not expecting a bigger crowd, they're going to actually not allow people to sit on the fourth floor so they can condense the crowd on a lower level. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's it's I, I speak very highly of the stadium, but, you know, I come back to what we've said before. Um, Combank is the best week-to-week rectangular stadium in Australia because of the size, the design and the atmosphere that it generates. You can have... Quite frankly, seven or eighteen thousand in that thirty thousand seat stadium in Combank, and the atmosphere is terrific. Once you get over twenty or up, particularly up to twenty five, the atmosphere, as you guys know, is electric. Oh, so it is. Insane. I think on week to week basis, um, you know, Combank stands up very well. But you know, Sydney's lucky to have two great stadiums. I, I know that the suburban versus or suburban ground versus the sort of centralised stadium. Uh, argument rages on right into this week one final series where you've got Cronulla taking on the Cowboys out at 11,000 11, crowd. Uh, I think it's point bet. That's the other one that I got mixed up at the start. Stadium, obviously, the Penrith Panthers with their 20,000 capacity home stadium. But outside of that, looking at the East, East and Seaboard stadiums now, you've got Amy, you've got uh, Combank, you've got Suncorp, you've got uh, Allianz. It really is a golden age portfolio really for rugby league stadiums now there, there are just some incredible venues right up and down yeah, the eastern seaboard there is some terrific venues the problem is still in sydney because you have nine clubs yeah. clustered in the yeah. greater sydney marketplace and you can make a case that there's only there's only two decent stadiums being combank and allianz um you know acor is totally inappropriate for week-to-week rugby league it's mm-hmm. just an embarrassment to our game that we even play there um as far as the finals go um, you can't change the po- the policy is that the, the home team gets the semis. You can't change that a week out like people were complaining about saying, why don't we go to a bigger stadium? I think the policy needs to be changed, though. I don't think we should be playing uh, semi-final matches where you can house 11,500 people down at Cronulla. And quite frankly, even the Penrith Parramatta match will get 22,000 people and fill the joint out there. But, you know, you put it at Acor and you probably get 50,000 mm. people. Yeah, 60s uh, and I've spoken yeah. about this. and, and it's it the, is... policy. the policy needs to be changed, in my opinion, in that you need to have a, a flexible policy. There may be games, for example, if Penrith were playing 
um, Canberra or North Queensland or an out-of-town yeah, it, team. It makes sense for the 22,000. You may play that at Penrith. But if Penrith's playing Parramatta or St George or Canterbury or the big, powerful Sydney clubs that draw people, um, it just seems that the NRL should have the flexibility, given that it's an NRL game, not a club game, to move that to move that game to the stadium where you house more people. But that, that's my thoughts. Yeah. Well, it's um, we the NRL does seem to have flexibility when it comes to decisions. For example, the tail and May uh, decision, <laughs> oh, but mate, uh, that should probably be that'd be opening yeah. up a can of worms in a preview yeah, uh, podcast. That, we've yeah, already we've already got into um, yeah, just stadium uh, decision. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now. Look, turning back to our eels, the regular seasons just produced a top four finish. We've touched, we just touched on that. Is it is it fair to say that we've achieved the first goal that we would have set for the year? Absolutely, it's been a successful regular season. There's no question about that. And uh, you know, when you win 16 games and, and lose eight, you take 16 and eight every year because some years that'll get you second or third. Mm. Um. What that means is that if you take three game blocks, you go win, win, loss, win, win, loss, win, win, loss. Now, that's the that's the ta- the target every year is to make the top four, and the Eels have done it. So, absolutely, they've achieved their objective. You know, and I hear the talk about inconsistency, but they're still finished fourth. So, they finished ahead of the Storm, the Roosters, and the Rabbitohs, who are very highly rated clubs. Um, so, we didn't lose a consecutive game all year. And when you win sixteen regular season games, you know you basically take that every year. And what a way to do it too, almost a storybook finish to the regular season, round 25, hosting one of the modern powerhouses in the Melbourne Storm at home in Combank Stadium, winner takes all for that top four spot and the Eels produced with the bright light shining. Absolutely, you know, I wasn't at the game, but you could, you know, the atmosphere permeated the TV, which is a great advertisement for our game. Um, Parramatta were up for this game, as we talked about um, that their their mentality was really good. They really they they aggressively went after the game with the intensity they needed to do that. You know, with all due respect, um, the Storm didn't have Hughes or Pappenhausen out of number one spine lineup. But you know, Parramatta can only beat who's in front of them, and they played very very well. So look, it was a great result for the club. And you mentioned that inconsistency, and I think that on a micro level, you can absolutely sort of nitpick and and pull apart different aspects of the team where they've sort of let themselves down because every team has areas where they can be improving on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis. But since round one of 2019, no team has sat in the top eight longer consecutively than the Parramatta Reels. They've been in the top eight since week one of 2019 after that horrible 2018 campaign where they had that big in-house you know, sort of uh, turnaround. That That is actually long-term incredible consistency for a club that is almost, uh, I don't know by brand association, but by at least you know the pundits in average accused of being inconsistent in general. Yeah, look, it's an, it, that's a terrific record. And, and you know, the goal, um, you know, six years ago when Max Donnelly came in and, 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 and the, the goal was to, to turn the club around was to, became, was to become a consistently competitive club. Now, there's many factors that go into that. Um, you know, there's been – we now have a balanced quality roster. Uh, that's, a, that's a factor in that consistency. Our spine has been reasonably consistent over that four-year period. Uh, the, our players within the team that we have are maturing. Uh, we've got a number of players over the last three or four years, and particularly in the last one to two years, have been moving into what I call as the sweet spot of their careers. Moses, Gutherson, Campbell, Gillard, Paulo, uh, Madison, Lane, Sevo, they're all 
they're all in the sweet spot of their careers, supported by some really good young players over the last three years. Dylan Brown, Reed Marnie, Papa Lee came in, Murata Niacore, Panasini. So out of those players that are in their sweet spot, you're not going to see significant improvements in the next, even in the next two or three years. You'll see marginal improvements because their experience gets better and their confidence therefore gets better. But uh, yeah, this is a, a, a well-balanced roster. Um, I think it's a testament to a few things uh, that I've just spoken about around the playing roster, but on a broader perspective, there's club stability, there's coaching stability, there's team stability, and there's been some good recruitment. You know, even back at the end of 18 or during it, recognised we had to get bigger and younger, and we did. Junior Barlow came in, uh, we got Sean Lane in, uh, Blake Ferguson at the time came in, there's been selectively good recruitment with uh, Wonga Blake, Regan Campbell-Gillard, uh, the recruitment's been been good over the last four years. And when you look at the teams that continually change coaches and players, they're not sitting at the top. They're just not. Now, no. the, the outliers there would be this year, you've seen real improved uh, the, the, the Sharks and the Cowboys. They've brought in two really good young coaches who've changed the attitude of their clubs and turned it around probably quicker than can be expected. But back to the Eels... That uh, record you just talked about of being in the top four since round one, two, three, that's a terrific record and the club should be justifiably proud of it. Uh, um, just on um, this season and and uh, how we've performed, there has, of course, been uh, matches where we haven't looked like a top four team, but as we talked about, they they never lost consecutive games and teams that we finished ahead of did lose strings of matches. Um does this see, has this season for Parramatta differed significantly to previous seasons for us in any way? Oh, look, seasons are hard to compare. You know, there's so many factors that go into a season. But I mean, the Roosters lost four games in a row this year, um, and they're a quality club and a quality out. Um, so Parramatta's record this year is, a, you know, to get where they are is very good. There's an old saying in US sport: "You are what the competition table says you are." And we're a top four team. So, you know, they've shown resilience. They've shown a good attitude to bounce back. You know, you you can't lose two games in a row all season with, without the ability to have the bounce back factor. Um, it's a long season, too. And p- people that aren't close to the game, they, they sometimes they get hypercritical. But it is a long season. It's a grind. You, the players are going and the coaching staff are going since 1 November. There's injuries. There's off-field considerations that people don't know about. Players have family problems. They have personal issues. They have issues with managers. You know, there's a a myriad of issues going on behind the scenes. That's why it's so difficult. If it was easy, everybody would do it. But, you know, Parramatta, um, to finish in the top four, it's been a very, very good regular season. Now, Brad Arthur had some very strong messaging in the wake of that humiliating loss to South Sydney just about a month ago. Looking from the outside in, Bernie, and you know, on the surface level, this is going to be an obvious yes. But to your eye, have there been any discernible changes or any subtle changes to the mindset and the performance of the Parramatta since that particular loss? No, I don't think we need to overcomplicate the analysis off the back of that South loss. The mentality has clearly been improved. Brad, as the head coach, justifiably had some, you know, come to Jesus meetings with with the players individually and as a group. And, you know, in the last three or four weeks, they've really bounced back and shown that they are legitimately committed for the remainder of the season. And, 
that's the sort of mental response that you want from your football team if you expect to be an elite team playing in playoffs and not only just playing in playoffs but potentially winning playoff games. And I suppose the follow-up question is that is, of those three wins that we have on the trot now, uh, Canterbury, uh, Canterbury, Broncos and Melbourne Storm, sorry, I got there eventually, what was the most pleasing aspects of those wins? Always some big, some big score lines there, but the Eels, what, leaked 6-6 six, six, and then uh, 16 against Melbourne. So the defensively, there was a huge turnaround. Is that what probably caught your eye the most? Yeah, look, the defence has dramatically improved and it needed to be because the, the only problem with our, with our regular season record this year is that we're the worst defensive team in the top eight. Um, that doesn't normally translate well to um, you know, playoff success. But we've had lapses in games, even the Storm game um, last week. They scored three tries in the last 14 minutes. Now, I wasn't overly concerned. Um, you know, basically, though, sometimes the late tries in games are what I call garbage time tries. They're, they're tries scored late that don't really mean anything. The bottom line, though, is Parramatta has weak points at various stages of games this year, such as that Melbourne game, three tries in 14 minutes, we leaked unnecessary points in our losses to the Tigers and the Bulldogs earlier in the year. Um, so there's been a there's clearly statistically we we haven't been the most gritty defensive team. But as we now move into the playoffs, the players seem to have addressed that. And you know, as you said, in the last three weeks, the defence has been has looked much more much more comfortable. But in, and we're adopting now a slide defence out on the edges, which I think suits our personnel better. It also suits uh, how you should defend against certain attacking teams that we're playing, particularly the better teams. But that's that's all off the back of aggressive, intense defence in the middle of the field. Whether you have slider up and in out on the edges, it doesn't mean anything if you're not winning the physical battle and the collision in the middle of the field. And we've really upped our game there, consistent with improved mentality in the last three weeks. Now, uh, we, you've mentioned a couple of players earlier on that have been that are in the sweet spot of their career. We'd just like to get your takes on um, on certain Eels players uh, because you've got a history of strong opinions on them. Uh, now, firstly, Sean Lane. You've always held a high opinion of what Laney can deliver. His, uh, his season this year must really have gladdened your heart. Oh, yeah, he's been terrific and... Uh... You know, we recruited him in 2019 as part of that plan at the time that Brad and Peter Sharp and I had to get bigger and younger. Um, and, and Sean's a big body. Um, I still think he's got uh, improvement in him, but he's he's uh, he's played terrific. What 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 I've really noticed this year is really focused on on hole running. In other words, you know, getting off Dylan Brown. They they've improved their relationship out there on the left edge. Um, I did not like when he was being shuffled between middle and edge. I don't like – I like 80-minute edge players because I think it not only is is a simple plan for the players to commit to, but usually your two starting edges are your best edges, so you've got two starting edges playing for 80 minutes. It also simplifies your rotation in the middle. Um, and having Lane now committed full-time to that left edge has been very, very productive. Sean's a smart player. Um, he reads the play very well. People don't. I, I think they underestimate how well he reads reads the play. He's an effective defender. So, yeah, I couldn't be happier that Sean's playing so well. And I think he'll continue to play well for a number of years. I think he's he's ready now to have a go on a run of consistently good play. But that'll be uh, that'll be conditional on, you know, him maintaining the intense mental commitment he needs to do that. 
And another back row you've been very vocally supportive of on the tip sheet is Murata Niakore. Uh, from the first time we spoke to you, he, he's been a player that you've been all in on, very positive of. And us too, we've always loved Murata. But I think it's fair to say that for about the first two-thirds of the season, I think he probably was hitting his own personal benchmarks that he set at Parramatta across the last couple of years. But on the flip side, I don't think it's a coincidence that Parramatta's resurgence has been timed almost sort of game for game with Murata coming back to his best and really setting a tone in early in these uh, tough games against the likes of the Melbourne Storm. Uh, can he be a difference maker for the Parramatta Eels moving into the finals now? Oh, absolutely. I think he's been a difference maker the last uh, three or four weeks. And I think, look, early in the season, he had some injuries. Uh, when he did come back, he was getting sporadic football. He was playing a little bit in the middle, a little bit on the edge. Um, he might have had a game at the centres. I don't know whether whether he did, but he was getting moved a little bit around. So he was a little bit discombobulated, I think, early in the year. But Brad's now set him a very simple role. Um, he's a starting middle. He's not a play one uh, front rower. He's a he's a he's a he's a lock forward playing as a thirteen. But his role's been set as very simple. He runs hard. He tackles hard. And he's a big, powerful, imposing presence. He is not intimidated by anybody. And whilst he's a bit of a quiet achiever for the Eels, I think his respect within the playing ranks is very strong, not just with our players, but I think opposition players respect him very much. So, yeah, I think the role we have him playing now is a starting 13, and he's really just ripping and tearing as a, as a big physical presence there in the middle of the field, backing up Campbell, Gillard and Paulo. It's a three-pronged attack that not many teams have that that physical presence and capability of those three collectively. And, uh, yeah, look, Murad is a great – look, he's a great fellow. He's a great clubman. He's going to be a huge loss to the club next year. And really the other big beneficiary of Murata's resurgence has been Ryan Madison with that uh, sort of dual role they share at lock forward where Madison wears the 13 but, you know, plays the majority of the minutes off the bench but still to great effect. So Murata being able to absorb those, you know, torrid opening minutes and, and lay the tone – there has worked equally well for Ryan too. Absolutely, and it also helps the rotation because when Ryan comes on, he plays out the rest of the game, which means Murata then falls back into a middle rotation and mm-hmm. Brad can selectively use him along with Junior, uh, Campbell Gillard and Makatoa and Kafusi. There's a real there's a real flexibility then around how he uses those middles depending on how the game's going. And... Uh... And, and finally, in, in terms of players that we're after some specific comment about, you've uh, already spoken about Dylan Brown as being one of the great young players coming through. Are we now seeing the fulfilment of his potential or are we still just scratching the surface? I think we're seeing the start of the fulfilment. So there is still plenty of surface to be scratched. Um, Dylan's really improved this year. He's it's like the you know the light switch has been flicked on this year for him, and I've heard a few interviews, um, particularly Mitchell Moses, and it's, it would just appear to me that um, you know Dylan's taking his football a lot more seriously. <laughs> I still think he'll get even better. I still think there's an untapped element to Dylan. I think he's starting to understand the game better. And when you're playing as a second receiver, you know this. And, and Luke Keery is a great example of this. Luke Keery is a master of second of second receiver play. Nice. He understands the game so beautifully and the subtleties of the game. And by that I mean, and these are things Dylan is learning, the ball playing, manoeuvring your edge forwards into the right spot. And Dylan's doing that beautifully with Sean Lane, uh, making sure your centres and fullbacks are in the right spots in shape. I think he's getting better at that. And these are all subtleties that the, 
you know, that the really good sixes like, say, Luke Keary, they do it so beautifully. And I think those subtleties uh, are coming into Dylan's game. And, of course, you know, he's, he's improving his decision-making on when to do the show and go, when to kick, which kicks are required, all those little things. There's a myriad of little things that sixes and sevens have to do that no one else has to do. That's why they're such demanding positions and so important positions in winning football teams. But Dylan's improving those. And and then, of course, he occasionally comes up with what I would call Brett Kenny-like uh, patches of brilliance. And there's no higher rating to say you can do something like mm. Brett Kenny. Um, I'm not saying he is Brett Kenny. He's a long way off Brett Kenny. But Dylan's really developing well. I'm really, you know... The club should be proud of, of what he's doing. He's a he's a guy that's come through the elite power play system over the last four or five years. I remember watching his first open age game at uh, Ringrose Park in the second grade and when he was about 17 or 18 and wondering how he's going to go. Well, he adapted to it very quickly. The physicality didn't worry him. Defensively, I'd say he's, he's up in the top two or three uh, number sixes in the competition. Um, you know, his defence is great. And not just his one-on-one defence out left edge, but also, you know, the effort he makes on... He'll race to the other side of the field on cover defence. He'll race back to the goalpost to cover kicks. You know, he's he's just got a really beautiful sense of the game. So, yeah, look, he's coming along great, and let's hope it continues. 2019, the Parramatta Eels were shut up by the Melbourne Storm in week two of the finals. 2020, there was, a, for some of the most bizarre reasons you ever see, one of the most drama-laden finals that we lost against the South Sydney Rabbitohs uh, in week two of the finals. Last year, one of the all-time, or at least modern, Great finals, 8-6. We lost the Penrith Panthers in a highly physical, I mean, it was state of origin calibre in terms of the physicality, but also there were some dramatic calls in there that didn't go Parramatta's way. Iteration on iteration, the Eels have gotten closer and closer but haven't quite cracked it. What lessons have they taken from the last three years, Bernie? What can they do to better themselves this year and if not go all the way, get one step closer? Yeah, look, they're not far away. And let's face it, over the last five or six years, they've been, been eliminated by some pretty good teams, you know, Melbourne Storms and South Sydney Rabbitohs and Penrith Panthers. You know, these teams are very, very good teams at the time they beat the Eels. Last year, we beat Newcastle. <coughs> Excuse me. I didn't think we are ever going to lose that game. Uh, in Penrith, we were so close. You know, quite frankly, it has been, it's been well documented. If Reed Marnie plays, we probably win that game. Um, and that, that that very controversial call at the end of the game. Um, but, look, the Eels aren't far away. Um, the Eels just need to do what they do well, you know, dominate possession, particularly early in the game, kick well, have their power game uh, through the middle of the field. That's the blueprint. So I don't. it's not the time of year in the playoffs to do anything radically different. That doesn't work. You've got to do the simple things well and don't overcomplicate it. Um, so, look, I don't think they're far away. Is it fair to say that they've taken on board some of the lessons from the last couple of years in their approach across the last three rounds? They're the fittest and most informed we've seen them approaching the postseason uh, on the back of what they did last year where they had the big slump but turned it around with that late win against Melbourne in the regular season. But this year, including another win against Melbourne, they also had two compelling victories over the Broncos in Canterbury. Is that also part of the lessons that they've learned and taken on board? Well, it's hard for me to know because I'm not close to it anymore. But what I do observe is I think there's a I think there's a recognition that you want to be fresh going into you want to be playing well with momentum and mentally and physically fresh going in. We're very lucky that we don't have a lot of injuries. I think there's a recognition within the coaching staff, particularly Brad, obviously as head coach, that we need to be mentally fresh 
going into the playoffs, so the players are literally, you know, jumping out of their skins. Um, so I think that's important. The one thing you don't want to do going into the playoffs, losing, you know, three of your last four games, you don't want to be mentally tied, you don't want injuries. So the Eels are, are not that. So I think, you know, mentally and physically, um, they're in a good a position as they could be in. So, you know, I, I think, you know, they're, they're ready to go. Now, um, just turning specifically now to the game this Friday night, I don't believe that the Eels have the wood over the Panthers, obviously because the Panthers are just a, a, a crackingly good team. What I do believe is that Parramatta understand what they need to do to match Penrith and whether that leads to victory or not, the games are highly competitive. Perhaps the Panthers are the team that they know better than any other team. How do you see Parramatta's recent performances against Penrith? Well, Parramatta's style of play, uh, which is, you know, we have a very big, powerful team. We very rarely get beat physically through the middle of the field. It's only when maybe our attitude is down or our mentality is not where it needs to be. But as a rule, if our mentality is on, we have a big, powerful team through the middle of the field. Penrith play a very uh, fast-paced, up-tempo, powerful, intense style of play. They, they really try and intimidate you. They love to get into the grind. They love the physicality. Now, other teams wilt under that pressure because Penrith are just so good on that. And then, you've, you know, you've got on the back of that Cleary and the kicking game and everything else that comes with that to, that adds up to a, a very, very intense pressure game from Penrith. The Eels have the physicality and the mindset. They don't get intimidated by that. So Parramatta's blueprint of power play in the middle doesn't get intimidated by the Panthers' attempts to intimidate them. So... The Eels have earned the right over the last couple of years to feel very confident playing Penrith because they know the way they play, their blueprint, matches up very well against what Penrith are trying to do. So I don't think it'll be any different this weekend. I think Penrith will come out and start very, very fast. They'll try and intimidate. They'll try and power their way through the middle of the field. Penrith are very comfortable to get into the grind. Um, but I think the Eels are going to be the Eels will be ready for them. And in the back of their mind, they know that if they play and execute to the best of their ability, their blueprint, the power play, the kicking well, dominating possession, that they can really, really compete well with Penrith. And you made a point of emphasis for Parramatta to be successful in these finals. They need to stay true to their style of football, to what makes them so good. And you just mentioned there that you expect that to be the case here where the two teams are going to come out and, and be very physical, real slugfest, absolutely a huge contest for the Ruck. If the Eels can come out and set the tone early, do you think that Penrith would rethink their strategy, have have a second guess, or they double down on what they're doing or what they do so well too, and try and you know out physical, out compete the Eels and the Rock? Yeah, I think that I think the latter. Teams don't teams don't change materially on the run. They just don't do it too much. They they revert to what they know. It's sort of like muscle memory. Mm-hmm. It's mental mental memory. The Panthers are very happy in the grind. They're happy to get in the grind, set for set football. If it's nil, zero, zero after 20 minutes, but they feel like they've been intimidating you and physically dominating you and territorially dominating you with Cleary's kicking game, the Panthers, are they're, they're, ha- they're very happy with that, where that situation would be. The Eels, as I said before, they respond well. They've responded very well to that. So I don't expect either team to change who they are in this game tactically. I, I don't think there's going to be many surprises here. What I think will be very, very important in all playoff games 
And you know, you guys know I'm a huge proponent of the importance of the kicking game, long kicking, short kicking, pressure kicking, high kicking, low kicking, chip kicking, rubber kicking, all the relevant kicks. Kicks are so important to maintaining field position, pressure, and giving you attacking opportunities. And that that gets exacerbated in playoff football. So, again, the kicking is so important. Cleary's a master. We're hoping, from an Eels perspective, he's a little rusty after five weeks off. Mitchell Moses' kicking has been deadly the, the entire season, so we're relying very heavily on that. Um, so things get exaggerated uh, in playoff football. Um, so I really, I really think the kicking is going to be important, but I don't expect any tactical surprises from either team. So just just on that, Bernie, you've you've just spoken about what what Pendrith does well. You've spoken about how Parramatta is able to match them via the 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 Para One Hundred and One footy that we we like to play. And now you've just spoken on the importance of the kicking game and how elite Nathan Cleary's kicking game is. If you were to single out any aspect of Penrith's game that would likely trouble us, what would that be? Well, I think the the real foundation of their game, Craig, is their intensity. I don't. I, I've not seen over the last three three years any team that gets off the gets resets their defensive line, gets off their line so quickly. And then when, when at the point of collision are so powerful in the point of collision, they're just so good at the, the, the tackle, the reset of the defensive line, getting off the line quickly, and then getting into the collision and dominating you so you don't get momentum. That's that's their blueprint. They're very, very good at it. They, they, have, they must be extremely fit. Um, they must have a real commitment to that style of football. And then when you have, you know, Nathan Cleary, the, the orchestrator, just sitting off the back of that, um, manoeuvring you around the field, kicking so well. It's a very powerful combination, even before you get to the obvious athletic abilities within that team with Luai and Crichton and To'o and Edwards and Kikau and Martin on the edges. You know, it's a it's a very powerful platform they lay with that defensive intensity and defensive structures and systems. Um, they're, they're very, very powerful. They're, and then when it comes to the offence, um, the dangers for us are on the edges because Luai's running game, if he elects to run as much, he's very, very dangerous. And they're two edge forwards, Kikau on the left side and Martin on the right side. They're as good a combination, uh, one-two punch in the league as far as having a, a, a potent left edge, right edge. Uh, then you marry on top of that. You've got, you know, you've got Crichton out there on the right edge as well. They've just got strike all over the field. But Luai, Kikau and Martin from, an off, from Panthers offensive, Attacking capabilities—they're very, very strong. And you, you mentioned about their defence there. Uh, the Melbourne Storm had been credited with, or maybe the word is discredited, with certain aspects of uh, defensive techniques that they've uh, seemed to have uh, blueprinted over the years that other teams were quick to adopt as well. I, looking at, at Penrith. I could be wrong, but I reckon they were the innovators with the forklift tackle that seems to have come into vogue when a team's trying to get off their own line or return a kick that that strong defence meets them and literally lifts the uh, the runner, maybe not quite off the ground, but drives them backwards in um, in those tackles within the 20. And as soon as they get past the 20, that forklift tackle disappears. But when they've yeah. got a team in the 20... 
bang, they're in there. And you can hear the calls of forklift now, not just not just Penrith, I'm talking about across the NRL. You hear when there's a when there's a, a kick chase on and there's those first few tackles, you'll hear fullbacks or captains calling out forklift to let the team know what they want. Yeah, and Penrith probably, to your point, do it as, as well as anyone in the league, if not better. So, yeah, that that's definitely a strategy now, particularly if you do a kick that, you know, ends up close to the line and they can potentially forklift you back into the in goal. Um, yeah, yeah. That's very effective. And mm-hmm. Penrith's overall defensive game is absolutely outstanding. Yeah. They're just such so a complete team, aren't they? Points. Um, we've shown in the past we can earn points through pressure, but, uh, yeah, we're going to have to earn our points on... Uh, on Friday night. And you've made it quite clear how the Eels go out and win this game on Friday night, Bernie. You know, from the very start of this Penrith preview part of the the questions, it's been about the physicality. It's been about competing across the park. So, you know, part of that means that there are obvious candidates when it comes to how to win this game, how to beat the Penrith Panthers. You look at your starting trio of middles, Junior, Reg, Murata. You look at your playmakers, obviously. Are there any unheralded, I say unheralded, I mean, Parramatta Eels have got great players across the park, but in, in terms of those core players I've just mentioned, are there any players from an unheralded quarter that you think will be intrinsic or integral to the win on Friday night? I don't think any more than the normal. Um, you know, coming out of trouble, we're going to have to really really focus on coming out of trouble with obviously completing our sets, but we need to be, we can't get bogged down under the pressure of, of their aggressive, fast-moving defence, which means players like uh, Wonga, Blake, Sivo, Panasini, they're going to have to come in and, and really do some good work on the yardage game coming out of trouble. Um, we have to start the absolute must. Uh, the Eels start fast, aggressive and intense because Penrith will definitely, definitely will and you. You know, you don't want to be 10-0 or 12-0 behind after 12 minutes and you're really then pushing pushing it uphill to make a comeback. Um, Parramatta's not only got to get into the grind, they've got to stay in the grind. Some go with Penrith for 10, 15 minutes, they, so they get it, they start it, but they don't stay in it. Um, Parramatta's shown an ability to stay in it. Um, Penrith will definitely stay in the grind. Mm-hmm. And then off the back of that, you know, the other thing I haven't mentioned outside of the kicking is the once the game settles into that set-for-set type football, that Penrith enjoy that football, but so do the Eels. Brad Arthur continually talks about playing set-for-set football. Um, The other thing that comes into it is the offloads, and that is a point of difference between the two teams. Parramatta's a a better offload team than Penrith. It's not something they typically focus on. And even last week, Parramatta, I think, had 15 to 7 offloads against the Northern Storm, and that differential, I think, is significant in building and continuing to build the momentum because every time you offload, you've committed two or three to a ball carry and suddenly pops it out and you're off and running and those two or three players aren't in the defensive line. That that means your next play, the ball's you quicker one. Yeah, I think Parramatta's ability to play in and out of structure like that, Bernie, has been one of the big contributors to why they've been so disruptive against some of the, you know, the, the long-term premiership contenders like Penrith and Melbourne recently. So that's absolutely going to be a difference maker for them well, on Friday, I, I hope. Yeah, the offloads are critical for Parramatta because we're not we're not the most clinical team in the league from an offensive structure point of view. Other teams such as your Souths, your Cronullas, uh, your Cowboys, uh, even and even your Panthers, when they get in good ball sets, they're very clinical and very structured. We we have the capability to do that, but Parramatta's point of difference typically. 
we play a little more off the cuff. We're probably as dangerous 40 yards out as we are. We're probably more dangerous 40 yards out than we are 10 yards try line because we play off the back of offloads. We tend to score some long-range um, tries. Even look at last week when Gutherson just ran across the halfway line, threw it to Sevo over the top, and he ran 45 yards and scored a try. Um, it wasn't off good structural. It was simply off a bit of unpredictability. And Parramatta have the ability to do that. And that unpredictability probably does worry Pems a bit because it usually comes off the back of offload. Now, Bernie, in our chat today, you've literally provided the blueprint for our podcast because we call it the tip sheet. You've literally run through a tip sheet of how this game's going to be. But if you were going to summarise everything that we talked about so far, how are we going to beat Penrith? What would be the your summary if it was just on a tip sheet, how you beat Penrith? Okay, number one, start fast. You've got to start fast. You, you can't let them even get a sniff that they're intimidating you. You've got to start fast, aggressive and intense. Um, you've got to kick well, complete your sets. I know this is all simplistic stuff. There's no, this is not brain surgery. Um, this is very simple stuff, but sim- executing the simple things gives you the opportunity to be a little bit unpredictable as the game develops. If you don't do the simple things well, it doesn't. you can do the simple things well, but it doesn't guarantee you win, but I'm telling you, if you don't do them, you won't win. Mm-hmm. Um, the kicking with Mitchell, Mitchell's kicking is going to be imperative. And I, I really think the selective offloads in the back half of each half as, as the game tends to settle into a slower-paced type of game in the last 20 minutes of each half, I think the selective offloads uh, if Parramatta can keep the game close and and get to that point and, and they can do a bit of their unpredictable attack, that will be advantageous to Parramatta. But again, it's all off the back of that strong platform, so it's it's going to be a riveting game. You know, it's uh, it's it's a game that could clearly, obviously, go either way. But it's a game that I don't expect a lot of points because I think the defensive intensity of both teams. Now, I could be wrong and it could end up being thirty-two twenty-eight, but I'd be very very surprised if it was. No, seeing both teams ratchet up the defensive intensity, I think, is uh, very common sense there. And it's the time of the podcast where we'll get you to lay your cards down on the table, Bernie. Going to shoot your shot. Tell us how you see it playing out on Friday night. Well, I do think the Eels can win. I think that they've got a confidence. Um, When they play Penrith, other teams go in there hoping to beat Penrith. The Eels will go there saying, we can beat Penrith. Uh, Then there's a big difference between... in those belief mechanisms of hoping to win versus believing you will win. And I think Parramatta go there believing they'll win. I think they're well prepared. And I really think that Parramatta can, if they, if they do all those simple things well, that, they'll, that they can eke out a victory at uh, Penrith Park. And, of course, the Eels versus Panthers is just one part of one of the best opening weeks of finals we've seen in quite a number of years. There are four sensational games out there, Bernie. Moving on to Saturday, we've got the two, you mentioned them already, but the two impressive young coaches in Fitzgibbon and Peyton. Uh, Fitzgibbon piloting his Sharks to second place on the ladder to take on Peyton's third place Cowboys out at Cronulla. How do you see this one playing out? Yeah, look, I think this is this is going to be a super game. Both teams are very well coached. When I watch the Sharks and the, and the, and the Cowboys play, I, they, they look like teams that are very well coached. And by that, I mean... When they're, when they're attacking, they look like they've got a plan. Their shapes and formations are very good. 
when they're defending, they do all the the, the, the hard things, the, the one percenters on defence, which is probably indicative of the two coaches. Uh, so I think they're very well coached, which is a good thing. I think this game comes down to the simple fact that, that Cronulla are playing at home and, and the Cowboys aren't. They're very tough to split. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been really impressed with both teams this year, but I'll tip the Sharks to win that one at home. And it's funny that you bring up belief mechanisms because the Canberra Raiders eke their way into the finals on the back of a very, very late run that coincided with a complete collapse by the Brisbane Broncos. But they now come against the Melbourne Storm, a team that they've got a very favourable record against. Yeah, correct. And the other thing is, you know, we talked about momentum coming into the playoffs. The the, the Storm, from the outside, appear to be limping into the playoffs. They dropped out of the top four, which is very unusual for them. They've had some injuries. I don't think you can – you can't overestimate the injuries to Pappenhausen and, and Jerome Hughes. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, They're mammoth. You know, if you look at every – I guarantee you, if you did an analysis of the top six or seven teams and listed their spines and compared them to the spines of the bottom four or five teams, the difference would be monumental. Spines are so important. We talked earlier about the continuity um, over the last three or four years of the eel spine and how important that's been in consistent success. Um if Jerome Hughes doesn't play, I think Canberra can upset them. If Jerome Hughes plays, and I'm a huge rap on Hughes, I think he's a gun. Um, I think the the Storm might eke out a victory, but this is this one's a very very tough one to pick. I think the Raiders are going to be up for this. Um, um, the Raiders play a bit like Parramatta; they're a big powerful team. Yeah, Tapanay Papali'i leading the way there. Well, Tap Papali Tapanay Elliot's probably in career best form at 13. He's very powerful. Um, they're not a, a very clinical team, the Raiders, but they're a powerful team, and they're not they're, they're not unlike the Eels in a way. If they can dominate physically, and I sensing in the the storm, the storm forwards look they're starting to look a little older to me. You know, the, mm-hmm. they're just not they're just not playing with that power game they used to have. Now Bellamy's the sort of coach he can get them up for a game. I don't see them running through the playoffs and winning four straight weeks to win the comp. I don't think they'll do that. They could clearly win this game. Look, I'll tip the storm if Hughes plays, but if he doesn't play, I'll go Raiders. Yeah, Melbourne in their first sudden death bout in week one of the finals since 2014. They've been top four every year up yeah, until 2022. They've been squeezed out of the Melbourne Orange over the last few years. They're, they're just looking a little tighter and older to me. And with If Hughes doesn't play on top of Pappenhausen not playing, on top of the fact they've lost some really great players in the last two or three years, as I said, I think I'll go Storm if Hughes plays. If he doesn't, I'll go Raiders. And that pair of cracking games on Saturday dovetails into the one where all eyes will turn back in Sydney. It's the foundation rivalry, the Roosters versus the Rabbitohs, in one of those rare cases of back-to-back uh, was it final regulation games into week one finals games. Parramatta Eels obviously famously doing that in 2009 against the Dragons. Roosters took took the bickies last week, Bernie. How does it play out this week, though? Yeah, I've got a bit of history in this game. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a fascinating matchup, and the, the rivalry is legitimate. Um, I think it's going to be a phenomenal game to have the Roosters playing the, the Rabbitohs in a knockout semi-final game at Allianz Stadium. I'd be very surprised if they don't get 40,000 out there again. Mm. I think it'll be a terrific matchup. I think South's They'll get Cook back, they'll, and they'll get uh, Campbell Graham back. They're two big ins for us. Cam Murray expected to take to the field after the Farrier Expected to play. That's a whole other issue. We won't get into no, here. But he'll he'll play. Um, so you've got those players coming back. Number one. Number two is usually the team that gets beaten. They have they they adopt a, a slightly tougher mental edge the next week. It's just an inherent 
you know, psychological thing that beaten teams do. Now, on the uh, opposed to that is you have the Roosters. They're getting uh, Tupu and uh, Suwalihi back. Jared Weah Hargraves only played 14 minutes last week, so you're effectively getting him back, which is very similar to the, the Rabbitohs getting Murray back, who only played like one minute. Um, this is going to be a cracking game. I, I think Souths are going to be really up for this. I think Latrell Mitchell will be very disappointed in how he played last week. I think he'll be up for it. He'll have a better game. The Roosters will play tactically very similar to how they played last week. I don't think Souths got any momentum last week, and and that was indicative of by the fact you never saw those beautiful sweeping left side plays that South are known for last week because they couldn't build the momentum to do that, and the Roosters wouldn't let them do that. I still think the Roosters are the better team. Um, Manu's a huge out. He's yeah. he's what a, what a player. Yeah, that, that is what a, a massive loss for them. He's the best right centre in, in rugby league, and not only that, he not only plays as the best yeah, right centre. That's what I was going to say. He's not even a centre. He's just this incredible, like almost like a super utility. He's a wild card. But he roams around the field, and he's not only the best right centre, but he, he's a roamer around the field as well. So he's a huge out for the Roosters. But the Roosters are, a, look, they're a very, very well-coached team. They're going to be very well-prepared mentally, tactically, and physically. Um, I, I think it's going to be a sensational game, but I think I, I think the Roosters will win it in a close one. And, Benny, as always, an absolute pleasure to have you on the tip sheet. You've given us an incredible and exhaustive walkthrough of how the Eels got to the finals, what it means to be there, and how they're going to take on Penrith and potentially beat them. And then just going through the other finals games was absolute boss of you too. Hope we have a chance to catch up for you deeper into the finals run. But for now, thank you, mate, and wish you the best. Happy to chat any time, boys. It's going to be a great weekend. Enjoy the footy and uh, go the Eels. Well, let's hope that our, our next preview we do with you is in two couple weeks, weeks time away, rather yeah. than two weeks <laughs> <time>. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thanks, boys. Yeah, Sixies, we love having Bernie on the show, and for good reason. He's practically done our job for us when it comes to the NRL final. But we do have two games we're going to quickly preview, one being the NRLW and obviously then that uh, final against the Penrith Panthers. Let's get straight into the NRLW. This one kicks off Saturday, 1.05 p.m. down at Amy Park, by the way, as it follows, obviously, the Melbourne Storm final down there. Eels taking on the Titans. Eels the away team, despite both teams being away from home. They enter this game as the favourites, interestingly. Looking at the team, though, at fullback, we've got Gal Broughton. On the wings, it's Zali Faye and Testanes. In the centre is one of the two co-captains, Tiana Panatani and Rekia Horn. In the halves, Ashley Quinlan and Taylor Preston. Philomena Hanisi and Ellie Johnson are the bookends. Sally Malangi, the dummy half. In the back row, Christian Pio, Vanessa Foliaki and Samama Talfa round out what I believe is an unchanged starting lineup from the team that was controversially beaten by the Newcastle Knights. Moving to the bench, we've got a pair of Cherringtons, one of the Kennedy, one of the Reuben variety. They're joined by Nevada George and Ruby Jean Kennard as part of the 17-player roster. Extended roster features Abby Church, Cassie Tohihiku, Brooke Anderson, Brooke Morgan Walker, and Rima Butler. They're taking on a Gold Coast Titans team that, like the Eels, come to this game without a win, but uh, unlike the Parramatta Eels, I don't think the Titans actually control their destiny now because they've lost to the Brisbane Broncos, if I'm not mistaken, which means that the Eels, who do have a game up against the Brisbane Broncos still in hand, can win out and have uh, results, not results, just their own results with four and against uh, be the difference. Yeah, that I think that's probably the, the saving grace that came out of losing last week is that pretty much the destiny still remains in the Eels' hands, even though they've... Uh, at best, they're going to get two wins out of five. Just the way the other matches have have panned out leaves it 
standing that way. The doors to a job. Yeah. It is. It, it is it is dumbfounding that they have been scheduled to play the Titans down in Melbourne. Now I know that they're looking to play these matches as curtain raises to finals games, but I think they're they're on what at about one o'clock or something like that, and the 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 finals clash between uh, uh, the Storm and and the Raiders. I mean. I just can't see why they would be flying the Titans and the Eels all the way down to Melbourne to play in front of what might be two people in the stands. Like, in all seriousness, there's three other finals matches being played uh, in Sydney over the weekend. It's, yeah. Including clubs I'm like the Cronulla Sharks, who actually have a pretty strong connection to the Harvey Norman Women's Premiership. So it is, yeah, interesting. Interesting logistical decision, I'll say that. Yeah, so anyway, that's um, it is what it is. Um, it, it probably goes along with a few other baffling decisions that are coming out of the uh, NRL lately. I mean, we have, <laughs> look, we have baffling scheduled decisions that often happen around the New South Wales Rugby League, and I, I understand that they have uh, a lot of things they have to take into consideration with semi-professional footballers and venues and a whole a whole lot of other things that that come into it. But um, yeah, look, it's odd. Um, bounce back, uh, you know. Like uh, my concern with this week is how last week mentally impacted mm. the team because you know that it could light a fire in the belly. Or yeah, maybe it crusher. could do the opposite. Yeah, yeah, because that was one of the more um, look. I, I don't know if there's any way of sugarcoating it as far as the officialdom is concerned in the bunker. And we do. I, I did mention that um, Chris Butler's in the uh, bunker this week, not Matt Noyan. But the decisions that were made defied belief, defied the evidence that was there, and we spoke about it on the podcast with Spiro yesterday, that if that had have been the NR, an NRL match with those sorts of calls that were made, it'd be headline stuff. Oh, big time. Absolutely and, and like, headline stuff. Like I said, you know, usually happy to excuse a bad call for just a judgment error, but I do not begrieve anyone that has a high degree of cynicism after what's happened in the NRL and the NRLW in the last seven days. And it, it just between the Taylor May precedent and what we saw in the bunker against Newcastle, just wow! Yeah. Look, I, the one thing, the one thing I'm going to say that, that concerns me, um, and I know we're jumping off topic here, but I think we have to address it because it was brought up um, in comments that we are hearing on the media today that uh, Peter Volandis has declared that. It was his fans. decision. His decision for the he fans. He made the call about Taylor and May. Now, That's how it is that he's suddenly stuff. coming in? How is he coming in now and making decisions about suspensions? Yeah. Uh, actual dictator. Oh, I yeah, well, that's it. That's the, that's the word that I was looking for, is that he's now coming in and, and going over the top of different groups within the NRL to make an overriding call that sets a precedent. He said that it's for the fans, the fans, and yet you would have 
all but the most ardent Penrith supporters, and I've even heard Penrith yeah. supporters that are saying one-eyed, one-eyed Penrith supporters <laughs> saying, I mean, they're obviously taking the decision and saying we'll run to the bank with it, but they're also acknowledging that it is incredibly bad. I mean, yeah. why, why isn't Lindsay Collins playing? You know, he, yeah. did, he did a hip how is, tackle. Yeah, how, how is it that this sort of decision is for the fans and that he's, he turns around and says he doesn't want to see the fans punished in this sort of incident? Every incident and, where there's a player in discretion and the player is suspended, that all punishes the fans. It's the nature of the and game. the false equivalency the that was used to in his metaphor for jockeys don't get if they get suspended they're able to ride out a carnival on the horse because because you know in racing that's how it is well yeah racing's a completely different sport the connection between a jockey and a horse is like the entire point of the race whereas in rugby league in any team sport you are a cog in a machine you're part of a greater thing where you can be replaced where you you often need to be replaced because of injuries because of suspensions because of all sorts of things and if you're going to make it such a serious indiscretion off the field, you serve your punishment right when it's been doled out. Crazy. I mean, I can't believe I can't believe the analogy that he made relating that to racing. Because, you know, the, there is just nothing. There is why, nothing why would about you, that is similar. Why would you ever serve a suspension in a given premiership campaign then? Because every regular season win contributes to your placing in the finals. So that's all part of the carnival. A jockey races multiple races during the, a weekend carnival. We play multiple games through the course of the season. Why would you ever serve your suspension during the course of the, the season that it was occurred in? Like following that yeah. logic towards a natural outcome. It is absolutely bizarre. It is highly concerning that he feels the need to impose his authority in such a way. And, you know, like we said, what a can of worms to open. And you just know that the next team's going to get absolutely hosed when it comes to something like this. Well, as they, I say hosed, as they should because it's a natural judicial mechanism to serve your suspension in the next game. But it's going to he's, cause... He's basically imposed in a dictatorial way his value system. Yeah, yeah. Completely his value bypassing system. systems that have been in place for you know decades, even with the revamp this year, but... You know, that have literally defined how we play this game. How we not know, to mention community standards, John. Yep. Not to mention community standards that he's flying in the face of. Yep. Because that's the that's that's a big message because you've now got this over you know, like this this decision. It's been talked back. It's been covered on talk back radio, on news stations, people that aren't invested in the game like like you you supporters that go to the games every week, people with only a passing interest in the game are up in arms about the the defiance of community standards where uh, someone who's been um, con- not convicted but has actually been proven guilty, found guilty of assault in a court mm-hmm. has been given the green light. I mean, let's, let's face it, the two-game suspension was light. It was light. Yeah. It is a slap on the wrist. The yeah. fine was a slap on the wrist compared to others. We could go back and talk about others that have been stood down. I mean, the obvious one is Mitchell Pierce, where Eight weeks for some Australia, Australia Day drunken shenanigans where no one was hurt. It was that, you know, that's it. I mean, he just he made a fool of himself. Yeah, he brought the game to disrepute. He, he deserved the copper suspension, but eight weeks, and you follow that into Anthony Milford, who you know eventually played for Newcastle Knights this year, but he got stood down for six or seven weeks, I think minimum, for something that was dismissed, dismissed, 
And you know this this comes back to how the NRL wildly teeters between you know, haphazardly between any sort of uh, you know uh, you know punishment system, wherever it's no fault stand downs or you know anything in between. And here we have literally systems that are in place to cover something like the Taylor May off-field incident, and yet the head honcho of the game comes in and says, no, no, that's not how it's going to be. He's going to play. Just blows my mind. Well, the, the I think the overriding question is, has the NRL adhered to professional standards oh, God, no. in their decision-making? <laughs> oh, God, no. This is, this is as Bush League as it gets. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that, that's an insult to country rugby league too, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Now, now we, we have digressed. It's a bit unfair for us to digress from our NRLW preview. We've, we've got this off our chest because it has, it, it, it raised its oh, head it, by It's going to rear its ugly head multiple times in the coming weeks, 60s. This is. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So let's, let's get back to, um, the NRLW preview. We mentioned we would we were talking about how the the team can bounce back from such awful calls that they were subjected to last week. Will it put a fire in the belly, or will it leave them really drained after last week because they put so much into that game? Yeah. I mean, look, it's probably fair to say they still haven't quite hit their straps. They've got they've had those moments in games where. They are really challenging opposition defences, but then um, they sort of fall out of the systems that they have there. But I think it's fair to say their intensity has been up a lot higher since the first round. I think we're going to learn a lot about our girls this game because that's two weeks now. They've come out and played some real physical football, first against the Dragons, last year's grand finalists and runners-up, and then last week against Newcastle, the you know big surging team that's made the big recruitment and made the big step this year. And, you know, by all rights, they could have been two and one heading into this round quite comfortably if, you know, just a couple of plays had gone differently, you know, regardless of bunker interference and whatnot last week. But if they just handled business a little bit differently, been a little bit more polished across some aspects of the game, they could have beaten both the Dragons and the Knights, which makes it very difficult because the, the mental blows in back-to-back weeks of losing those two games, compounded by the fact they got absolutely hosed by the bunker, not just in that you know, the Predabon try, but across a string of bizarre overturns uh, when it came to challenges and, and being put on report for hip-drop tackles that were never there. I don't know, 60s. We're going to get a real gauge of the leadership here between Panatani and Taufa, of Dean Witter's stewardship as well. Uh, this, on paper, is a game they should be able to, to comfortably win. The forwards just need to dig in give a bit of time and space to the likes of Preston and Quinlan. Gail Broughton, I've been critical of the Eels not using her enough. I think also by by the same token, she's been a, she needs to position herself a little bit more aggressively when it comes to being in the opposition half. I like to see her be either pushing up aggressively in support of her forwards through the middle or being out wide to be that you know final fulcrum point for the likes of Penatani and Rakia Horn. Uh, but if they can come out and, and just be competitive early on, I expect them to come out and win it. The question is, can they be competitive from the get-go 60s or is there, you know, morale sapped that badly from a, an absolutely horrible uh, last hit out against the Newcastle Knights when it came to outside interference? Well, I think aside from uh, the inclusion last week of Ruben Cherrington, they're pretty much the same 17, aren't they, uh, across the last th- three weeks? Like uh, they, the changes were made after round one. Correct. And then 
it's it's been pretty much the same unit with as I said with the inclusion of Ruben Cherrington uh, to take over dummy half roll uh, during the game uh, coming off the bench. So um, I think we're seeing strike on our edges. Mm-hmm. I think both back rowers have have really had some strong moments in games. Um, and I like what Rakia Horn's delivering. Yeah. yeah. Out, pound for pound, she's uh, right, very strong. Uh, obviously had the flexibility cover wing too, but looks at home in the centres. Scored a nice double against Newcastle, including a, a very good individual first try. So, yeah, between her and Panettone, you've got a, a nice little contrast in styles, but both can be incredibly effective, as we saw with that combination that Panettone had of Broughton against the Dragons. So I think featuring both those centres has to be one of the keys to victory this week. Yeah, so, uh, look, I have to admit, I, I, I haven't seen too much of the Titans Neither. this uh, year. To be honest, yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's been, um, uh, look, I, you'd have to say that they haven't advanced on last year. Maybe they've even, I think they've lost a player or two, haven't they, from, of, uh, from last year. I believe As so. well, but... Yeah. So, uh, you know, look, I, I thought that the uh, the Titans played some good matches in the in the season uh, earlier this year. But, um, yeah, you'd like to think that the Eels can get this one. It's awkward for both teams travelling down to Melbourne. Oh. Maybe it might also come down to who adjusts 100%, well to yeah, that who, travel. Exactly, who can make that first move positively uh, the quickest. Yeah, so, um, look, the start of the game, I think, is, I mean, much the same as it is with a lot of uh, rugby league games, but the start might well dictate the winner of this game. Mm -hmm. And if the Eels can get onto a positive start, um, get the first try on the board, get that confidence level back up if it's it's waning in any way. Um, I'd like to think they're fired up after what transpired last week. I... I believe that their their pack has really gone a long way towards setting the tone in the in the last two weeks and 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 like you I think where we've fallen down is our capacity to um, keep the keep our attacking structures as they should be at at crucial times in the match and and a lot of that has to do with how we involve Gail Broughton as as really a a marquee attacking player within the team and you spoke about how you know some of that onus is going to fit on her and she's she's probably got that sevens mindset mm, a little bit with uh, looking for a bit more space um so yeah, it, look, it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. I'll, I'll tip an Eels win, and I'm going to tip a comfortable Eels win in this. I think they'll win by 20 points. Yeah. In I, this. I, I'm, I, I'm not going to give a score. I think it's hard to pick a score in the difficult. NRLW. Yeah, it is. But I, I think I'll, I'll pick a 20-point win. And that, that is where I was winning too because I want to see our girls weaponize the anger and the you know all the pain that came out of last week being robbed of what would have been a critical two points on the ladder and come in and, and, you know, really use that as a catalyst for a big win. Because, as we said, they hold their fate in their own hands right now because they play the Brisbane Broncos next week, which means they need to win out and win, like, not comfortably, but win handsomely. 
and I was actually going to go for a 34-14 scoreline by that same 20-point margin that you were talking about, 60s. They need to get those points differentials ticking oh, up. Oh, that's it. That, that is the, that's the important thing is that, yes, getting the win first and foremost, but given the points differential, and most of that has come from that first round, losing yeah, by 20-plus uh, in that first round, um, because the, the last couple of matches have been close encounters. Um, but, yeah, they're... they're I mean, they may well pay the penalty for the for that first round yeah. loss. Right now, and they're only 10 points And adrift. this is the challenge of the NRLW, isn't it, in such yeah. a limited five, season? Five weeks, any any blink and you sort of lose or you miss it. Uh, and unfortunately, yeah. it was by, by, some, you know, by some of their own measure, but also by stuff that they cannot control. They've been forced to blink a couple of times already. And now they're left, you know, hanging by tenterhooks, but they still do control their path to the finals. 10 points adrift and points differential of the Brisbane Broncos. So every point is worth double next week. But right now, if they can get a good win, it sets the platform for us you know, to springboard into the finals on the back of a consecutive uh, victories against the Titans and Broncos in two weeks. So take care of business this week and take care of it well, girls. Uh, who do the Brisbane Broncos play this So if week? I just look at the NRLW draw, we go to this one here. The Broncos take on the Dragons and then they take on the Eels. So... It's uh, by no means uh, a cakewalk for the dra- for the Broncos this week, and um, the Dragons have shown that they're pretty classy. Yeah, yeah. So that concludes. Okay, the- mate. So now all that all that remains is for us to give our usual picks when it comes to yeah. the NRL clash. Let's run through the teams very very quickly. Uh, but yeah, we don't actually need to do a breakdown of the contest because Bernie Goode did such a sensational job for us. But uh, both teams come into this game essentially fully fit. It is the perfect game, really in terms of a neutral watching this one. Obviously, the Eels and the, the Panthers would have some strong words about having players uh, potentially missing for either team. But for the Panthers, they had 13 players rested against the North Queensland Cowboys, which means they come into this game fit as a fiddle. Dylan Edwards is their fullback. Taylor May shouldn't be playing, but he is. He's named on one wing. He'll be with Brian Toto on the other. Isaac Tago, Stephen Crichton, they're the centres. Jerome Luai will partner the returning Nathan Cleary, who will captain the team alongside Isaiah Yo. Cleary obviously making his return from a very lengthy layoff on the sidelines after spear-tackling Dylan Brown when the two teams last met. Moses Leota and James Fisher-Harris are the two starting bookends of Appiasite Coruscant, the third man in a very formidable front-row rotation there. Viliama Kikau, Liam Martin and Zaya Yo, equally dominant in the back row. Going to be an absolutely hammer-and-tongs clash across 8-13 there for both teams. On the bench, they've gone for two utilities, it looks like. Yeah, Mitch Kenny in the 14, Jamin Salmon in the 17. So a little bit light for the Panthers. Very interesting to see how that plays out. Scott Sorensen and Spencer Lenu, they're the beefcakes on the bench and will give the uh, forwards their rotations. Their extended roster for Panthers, Charlie Staines, Matt Eisenhugh, Jermaine Hopgood, future Parramatta Eel, Sean O'Sullivan and Chris Smith. On the flip side for the Parramatta Eel, 60s, well, we know this team won the 17. Co-captain Quinton Gufferson, he's at fullback. Mike Acevo, Wanga Blake, they're on the wings. Will Penasini, Tom Opacic in the centres. Dylan Brown and Mitchell Moses, they're six and seven. Reagan Campbell-Gillard, Reid Marnie and Junior Barlow, the other co-captain of the team. That's the starting front row for the Eels. Unchanged back row, Sean Lane, Azai Papali'i. Ryan Madison named the start, but I wouldn't be surprised to see the old switcheroo as he and Murata near Corey trade places ahead of kickoff. On the bench, speaking of Murata, he's in the number 17 jersey. Matt Makatoa, Jake Arthur and Oregon Kafusi round out the game day 17. Extended roster, 
Uh, plenty of stroke power here if the Eels do need the call on him for whatever reason. Nathan Brown, Bowie Simonson, Bryce Cartwright, Ofehi Ogden, and Kai Rodwell. Kickoff 7.50pm out at Bluebet Stadium, Friday night, available on 9, KO, and Foxtel. Or if you are like 60s getting out to the game, you can be part of what's going to be a packed house. Yeah, this one, what a what a sensational way to kick off the finals as a neutral and as a Parramatta fan. Yeah, massive, massive, mate. My nerves are kicking in already, uh, making plans last night about the travel arrangements up there. I mean, you know, like this is now the what we go through as supporters, just that, <laughs> um, you know, that gearing up for something that's big and, and talking about it for in the, in the days leading up to it. That's when you feel that, that uh, you're, you're hitting finals football, you're hitting that exciting time of the year. I'm looking forward to being out there. I'm out, I'm going to be in the Western stand. So that means in amongst probably the majority of uh, Panthers supporters over on that side of the field. Won't matter to me, mate. I'm going to make my voice heard out there. Um, I'm expecting that it's going to be the Eels being composed, being intense. Uh, you know, that fine balance of, of aggression and composure. Mm-hmm. that I think we're going to be able to deliver. I mentioned uh, before that I've I've been out to training this week and the overall overriding impression is that is that you'd expect the team to look fit but they look fresh as well. It was just you know there was just that vibe about uh the way they trained that had had me feeling this is they're 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 in the right space not just headspace, but physical space for them to deliver a result in this. I'm never overconfident about any game, especially when you get to finals football, because as we saw last year, even if we produce close to our best, there can be times when things happen that are out of our control. Uh, It was out of our control that Mitch Moses was interfered with in that um, trying to run support to Will Penasini when he made that break. It was out of our control that there was no consequence for Jerome Luai, despite it being clearly evident, the interference that happened there. It was out of our control when their trainer ran on to treat a player uh, when Parramatta had all the momentum mm-hmm. late in the in the game. It was out of our control when Will Smith was a judge to have made a, a high tackle. tackle. Uh, which gave the Panthers two yeah. points at, at, just before half time. Uh, you know, there's there were things that were out of our control. I guess that's footy, right? So there's the unknown that's there. But I'm going to make a call that the Eels win this game by 26 to 14. I I think I don't think the the gap between the teams is going to be any greater than that. I think it's going to be a high quality game of football. And I think what Bernie had to say with um, with Parramatta believing that they can win is critical. And I go back to what I said as well. I don't believe that Parramatta have the wood over the Panthers. I believe that they understand the Panthers and what they need to do to beat the Panthers maybe better than they do any other team that they play against. Uh, and, you know, and I think that's going to be critical to the match. I... I think I've been on record saying this throughout the course of the season, given some of our, you know, sort of signpost wins that we've had across the course of the year. The Eels feel like a team, and I've always felt like a team that have been built 
across the last couple of years from the ground up to beat the likes of the Penrith Panthers and the Melbourne Storm. And that's come at you know, certain concessions. We talked about the inconsistencies that have dogged the Eels on a micro level, less so a macro level, given they haven't dropped consecutive games. Uh, you know, this is this is the game where they've got to show, not, not, not just, you know, to discredit their work in the regular season, but this is the game where you stand up and make it counted, where you show this is why this team was put together the way it is, why they cause the likes of the Panthers and the Storm so much grief. And, yeah, uh, in saying that, you know it's not going to be... I mean, if the Eels get a blowout win, it's going to be the 1 in 100 outcome, right? Uh, because the Panthers are that good. They're just going to keep coming at you. And for that reason, I think I, with the other fellows on the Para podcast, I tipped, uh, I think it was 24-20 or 24-22 win for the Parramatta Eels. You know, real tight. I wouldn't be surprised if the Eels had that two-score lead heading into the final quarter of the game, but the Panthers score late to make it a, a contest and keep us on the edge of our seats uh, right until that final whistle. But yeah, the, this is the time to be stand up and be counted because obviously you win here, you go through to the grand final qualifier, you get the week off, which is an entirely different issue we've got to talk about if that happens and how Paramount handle buyers in general. But you know, I think the, the magnitude of the event of, of the circumstances would lead to a different mindset in a potential buy there. But yeah, go out there and, and like Bernie said, chase the collisions, do all your fundamentals right. Rugby league is a simple game which has some you know, incredibly complex and fancy stuff that, that can develop in it. But all that comes off the back of doing your job, of doing the simple things, of controlling what you can control and dominating what you can dominate. And that's going to be the mission statement for the Eels on Friday night. So I'll take the, a similar margin to what I said of the other boys, 24-20, 24-22. Uh, first try score, I'm going for Isaiah Papali'i. Man the match, you could take your pick here, 60s. Eve of the back rowers, they've been standouts in all of our big wins this season. Obviously, anyone in the spine, the front rowers... I don't know if there's a left field pick you've got, whether it's going to be like a Will Penasini double or a hat trick or something like that. But yeah, this is a game where all 17 players need to stand up and be counted. And because of that, the best on field could be any of them. Well, I'm going to pick the best on field as a player that you mentioned. I'm, uh, mentioned before. I'm going to pick Ice to be best on field. He's, he lines up against um, the big fella. William uh, for the uh, Yeah, for kick out for the Panthers. I think the the challenge of doing that is going to really fine tune his performance. Uh, I think the first try scorer is going to be Gutho. I think it's going to be he's been the top try scorer for the Eels this year. He's in a purple patch of form. We heard his uh, grabs with um, Spiro in the podcast yesterday. Anyone that hasn't had a listen to that, you know. Have a listen to it. It's exclusive to the Cumberland throw there. And uh, he just seems to be in a good headspace. Uh, probably um, completely different to how he might have been a couple of months ago where I felt that he had the weight of the world on his shoulders um, with uh, how the team was was performing in certain matches. And, and he, he seemed to have lost his way in his own form. But he's found his mojo. He's found his groove. He's playing gutho-type football right now. So I'm going to tip him to be the first try scorer. Mate, a cracking, cracking game ahead of us. Um, I'm going to try to um, get back from the game at a reasonable hour for us to record an instant reaction podcast. Um, We we, we might be approaching midnight when that happens, mate. So I'll I'll warn you in advance that uh, that's, That's that's what we could be looking at. So um, just when we've been organising travel arrangements, that's 
that's uh, you know there's there's different cars that are involved in the in the process of traveling with a group of people and getting up there and where we park and how we're traveling to the ground that sort of thing so it, it, it could be approaching midnight but um, we'll, we'll get it done and and I'm looking forward to it being on the back of a, of a important eels win that catapults us immediately into week three of the finals yes because sir. that's what it comes down to the Parramatta eels are 80 minutes away from going into week three of the finals for the first time since 2009. Yeah, all the marbles to play for this week, 60s win, and you're just 80 minutes away from booking your place in the big dance. You get the week off, get to recuperate all those little niggles and you know things that catch up to you across the course of the six months that is the brutality of the NRL. So much to play for. Parramatta Eels, like you said, you wouldn't say they've got the wood in the pen of Panthers, but they know their opponents perhaps better than anyone else in the NRL and are equipped to beat them perhaps better than anyone else in the NRL. And, yeah, it's going to be an absolutely cracking game of football that takes place on Friday night. Like you said, we're going to be, you know, win or lose, ready to record the instant reaction, whether it's midnight or not. Uh, but until that point, thanks for stopping by and giving us a listen. Hope you enjoyed that big sit-down with Bernie Gurr as he went through not only the previewing the Penrith Panthers finals game, but also talking about the Parramatta system, uh, sorry, system season uh, and everything that has conspired to put the Eels in a position now to potentially go deep into the finals. And as always, mate, go you wheels.